We often have very romantic expectations about parenthood. We will be the kind of parent who never bribes their kid because, of course, they will be tiny little angels and always listen the first time. And we will do everything exactly opposite of how our parents raised us because we know better now. Until, of course, you realize you have just become your mother. And our kids will follow the path we've carefully laid out for them. Ivy League for any kid because of all that baby Einstein I gave them. Or maybe they're a professional athlete because did you see the way he winds up to kick his sister? Just joking. Joking. Totally. So often, parenthood is about a mythical child who will be perfect in a way we haven't quite put our finger on. And the journey to love them will teach us something reasonably easy about ourselves. But what if we are not the parents we thought we'd be? Or our kids are not the kids we thought we'd have? I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. Writer Cami McGovern's oldest son, Ethan, was diagnosed with autism as a small child. She was determined to prove doctors' expectations wrong. She set out to build systems and change policies that allowed him education and meaningful friends. Soon enough, though, he was not just a toddler learning how to play or a child needing adjustments in the classroom. He is an adult who wants to participate in the world like everyone else his age. And Cammie is still determined to learn what it means to be an advocate for him and others living with disabilities as they enter adulthood. Cammie McGovern has been widely celebrated for her work advocating for people with disabilities. Her book, Hard Landings, is a memoir that stretches between love and policy and everything in between as she writes about her son and his future. I think you're going to love this conversation. She is incredible. Here we go. So often we have these very romantic expectations about parenthood, like parenthood is about this mythical child who will be perfect in a way that we haven't entirely put our finger on. And then and then the journey to love them teaches us something re- reasonably easy about ourselves. Yes. And like, what a what yes. a Hallmark movie. Yes. It's such a founding myth. I, I imagine that like learning to be loving in a grittier way is like the the place where maybe you started. Yes. Every parent of an autistic child who gets ultimately, uh, whenever they get diagnosed on this, it's often because there's such difficult behaviors that are so uh, terrifying to live through in public. And you have such moments of pure, unadulterated um shame or embarrassment when your kid is melting down in the grocery store and you have to abandon a full cart of groceries. There's any oh, number of yeah. versions of that because you can't, you know you can't make it through the checkout or a birthday party or something you know they were looking forward to. There's, there's uh, exquisite kinds of agony because you know your kid wanted to be here and then could not hold it together for the length of what he wanted to do or communicate his appreciation for being included. I used to watch other parents struggle with those moments. And I used to tell myself, I I would try to say, be proud 
of how you did this. Don't worry of how it looks because you look like a terrible parent more often than not. You're carrying your child out, you know, pinwheeling legs under the arm. And, um, and I would watch other parents do that and think you're doing the right thing. You're doing a good job. And I would wish that I could run after them and say that. And now when, when it started to go a little bit um, it got a little bit where it was just like a random slight outburst or something. I would have a surprising number of strangers say, I have one at home or older women that mm. says, oh, mine is 30. <laughs> and he would yeah. be seven at the time. And I would think there's a there's a network of us all trying to love our kids because those are brief times and they don't last forever. I mean, I can definitely reassure you that years of Ethan being um, really hard to predict in public are long in the past now. And so you get through them. And one great elementary school teacher said, let those moments happen and teach them how to recover from them and how to come back from them. And that's what you're looking for, a recovery time. And you're looking for, let's try again. Let's go back in to the party. Let's see if we can hold it together. And every time they do that, it's a victory. And Every yes. <laughs> time they have the pleasure that they wanted to, it's uh, it's an achievement. Yes. You write so beautifully about the early moments of disorientation and attempts to figure out what the first, seems like the first step for understanding is is like a, as a set of, of language that becomes a diagnosis. Like the diagnosis almost creates like the scaffolding around which you're trying to build yeah. this life together. And mm-hmm. and yet the the language around the diagnosis is just it is so it is so it can be so painful, yeah. especially when it feels um, like it doesn't understand who your child might yet be. You had a doctor who filled me with a kind of rage that I, <laughs> I was just, <laughs> just, if you don't mind starting there, like, what was that experience like for you of getting an, of a, a diagnosis? It's not an uncommon experience. Yeah. So what is usually happens or more often than not is you're waiting three months, you finally accepted that you need to get some help. And then you're shocked at how long it takes to get to a neurologist And then you get to the neurologist and he specialized, this guy specialized in epilepsy, something else. And so it was very quick, or at least for us, it was less than, it was about 45 minutes. So less than an hour. And he just sat with Ethan, who was at the time, and this is often the case, he was actually quite a social kid, not good pragmatic language, but he would wave and he would try to get people's attention and he would sing songs and show off. He'd had all these different things that didn't seem autistic to us. And um, I think that he felt his job was to say, no, this is autism. This is autism too, that you can be social, which it turns out is true, that autistic people are very social and very uh, interactive and very confused by all the rules around socializing. And with all these other deficits of play, Ethan didn't really understand play and language, answering questions, the back and forth of questions was always really hard for him. But then he told us in the same breath as telling us, no, this is autism. He said, and you must begin to lower your expectations. And he will, you'll be lucky if he ever has a job, writes a check, which was an odd thing for him to kind of fixate on. He'll never write a check. 
and you'll just he'll just be trying to learn some measure of independence and that's what you should be doing and he was 3 years old at the time but this is not uncommon and it was one of the mysteries that i think fires parents when they're fires and enrages you to to prove a doctor wrong and in fact i you know, got together with a group of wonderful, really um, energized fellow moms. And we founded a kind of after-school resource center that was all about one of our kind of calling cards at the beginning was let's prove all those doctors wrong about what. And we had kids with a wide variety of disabilities. Yeah, you rose to the occasion. Well, yeah, yeah, which is that we they don't know them and our kids are going to surprise all of us and do things if they're given the opportunity. And it was true. I mean, they did. But it was also true that there were some cautionary elements that he was saying that it's OK to consider for parents to. But I think we couldn't consider it until later on, until Ethan, it was better to be fired up. It was better to be. Um, that's your job in the beginning is is that right. we're going to um go you know we're going to push this uh we're and expose Ethan and give him as many opportunities and chances as we can yes yes the the, the language of unlimited agency is familiar to me yes <laughs> <laughs> yes i feel it too so yeah In the background of you learning how to be Ethan's mom with this diagnosis in that moment in his life, you also had this long family history, which mirrored much of our our society's reactions to people with disabilities. If you wouldn't mind telling me about your uncle Hank, yeah, and 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 your aunt Margaret, which we we now would have very different categories, I imagine, yes. for and their experiences. The story started with my grandmother's older brother, who had um, some kind of developmental cognitive disability, and it was very unclear how he came by it. And it still is, because at the time, and this was in the early um, 1920s and 30s, there was a eugenics movement that was very, that was growing and very powerful in this country as powerful as it was in Germany. And that the idea being that if we um, could weed out inferior genes or the inferior stock of the country, we could produce a better human and it would be for, for every society's betterment and everybody's betterment if we got rid of feeble-minded as they were known. And so the idea was that we would institutionalize the feeble-minded and keep them from reproducing. And we would spare all of the heartbreak that went along with that. And then the, the you know, sticky part came in how we defined feeble-mindedness and it swept in everybody with epilepsy and everybody with mild intellectual disabilities or differences of any kind, cerebral palsy. So what families did at the time was protect themselves and say, this isn't a genetic issue. It is an issue to do with um, he got meningitis. So there were several different causes that that was blamed for his disability. And then um, his parents had tried to give him home his family. His father was the was the local doctor. So I just feel like they were trying to do a heroic thing that was against the norm at the time, which was keep him at home until he was about 18. 
then he was institutionalized. And this was in Augusta, Georgia. Later on, my my grandmother had a late in life baby that she named after herself, Margaret, and um, which is my middle name too. There's just a funny that I always felt connection connected to that baby, Margaret, and was born when my dad was 11. Was a worry that she might have something wrong with her because she was born when her mom was 40. And indeed, she was fine for a year, and then it was clear there was something wrong with her. It was a combination. The mother, his, my grandmother's memory of having her brother live at home and the doctors very much saying you must institutionalize her for the, for the good of your other children. There was no choice given. I never registered or realized is that there were no options because there was no schooling available. There was no schooling or education mandated for anybody with disabilities at that time. So it really gave parents no options. And she died in the institution about two years after she was put in. But I feel like those would have been absolutely Ethan's um previ- the previous iteration of his life. And that would have been all of our kids now in this growing autistic community. And you have only to look at what those, you know, old footage of those institutions to see, wow, did we ever dehumanize? It's just, it's just yes. uh, shocking. And, and um, it's scary for a parent to look at it. Don't, don't look at those, but know that that's where we're coming from. That's what we're coming out from underneath the shadow, the shadow that is cast upon them now I feel like we've come out we've come a long way out and nobody yes. is is putting anybody back in institutions or separating them from their family. Yes. The world has come such a long way and yet it's still not good enough. And as you discovered navigating and outright raging and creating incredibly wonderful structural communal solutions, you've been navigating these complex institutions on Ethan's yeah. behalf. I mean, as as you write, Ethan came of age in the very first educational attempt to create a fully integrated. Um, what's all the What's the right language here? Like, because I remember this from growing up. But in you know, I'm from Canada, and we had like slightly different acronyms yeah. for how this worked. Inclusive education, mainstream educations. Yeah, I'm sort of curious when it began in Canada. Um, I wouldn't have realized this, that the that the law didn't mandate that kids with disabilities had to be educated at all until 1973. But at that point, it was fine to put those kids, for, for districts to put those kids in a church basement or a um, separate facility or, or a school basement or something. And it wasn't until 1990 and with our law, the IDEA, um, that really changed everything because it put kids in mainstream schools with their peers and their siblings, but it also put parents at the center of an of the education plan as well. And there was nothing else in public schooling that brought parents in on it to say, you will help us decide what you want your child to learn and you will set goals and benchmarks and we will work together. You will help us understand your child if they are hard to understand and if it what is a reasonable goal and what isn't. And in a way, that's one of the challenges parents of young kids is trying to figure out what's yeah. reasonable expectations, what are reasonable. And I tried yeah. to talk about how hard that is because you're pushing for things that may not be reasonable. But at the same time, it is such a gift 
to be able to say, let's not worry about mathematics or let's not worry about something else. I want this child to be able to cook his own meals or uh, to achieve a certain level of independence that you will you will know your child and what you want them to learn before they leave school and you will be working towards that. And that's a gift. That's It really yes. is. You spoke about the galvanization that you experienced in this in this long stretch when he's not just a toddler learning to play or in elementary school and needing extra help with math or even as a teenager, but just as this move into into manhood as in adulthood, someone who wants to participate in the world and wants the same things as his peers want and like hobbies and you know friends and I imagine for any mom after having seen so many different iterations of his sort of participation in in the life of his school that must have been a, a incredibly disorienting to know what what hope what what hope for the future should feel like yes that's kind of a good way of putting it the journey for many kids as was for ethan is that gradually school becomes more manageable, life becomes easier, and um, yeah. parents can be reassured that by the time they get to middle school, there's others new, you know, new challenges and different kinds of challenges. They have found an equilibrium, and then you face this daunting: what happens outside of school? Where is their place, and where is their community, and where can they belong? Because school became for Ethan a genuine community, and I think that's what's happened. The great gift of mainstream and inclusive education is that there were kids that had known him from elementary school, and mind you, Ethan is not um, high achieving, or or he participated in um, the musical and a, and other a few other mainstream classes and did art classes and that kind of thing. But he had kids that he could high five with and have inside jokes with, and especially staff and adults that he could interact with. But where would he find those in the real world and in the outside world? As transition starts in most states at, at age 16, and you're meant to, the focus of it is on um, life skills and on vocational skills. And very much the focus is on finding is work readiness. And that's a good thing because for years they were told none of these kids can work and we should all have our eyes open to the fact that many, if not all, can work, can do something. They should be um, urged to explore those things and given the possibility to do them. But it's a complicated business and it was very complicated for Ethan. And part of it was that working also was tantamount to working in the community, which meant working in the in the wider world. So at a CVS or at a grocery store. And um, those were hard places for Ethan to control his impulses and his joyful stimming is what we call it when he's bouncing and talking to himself and flapping. And anybody with a child with autism will know those things. So I, to me, I hardly notice them anymore. And then I remembered how disturbing they are. And, And I don't fault anybody for being, it's just odd and why is he flapping? And he would fix something on the shelves and then he would flap around because he was so pleased for himself. And, um, you know, and it's like, oh, isn't that okay? And 
not, you know, not necessarily. And it was not worth it to him to contain all those things when he kept getting sort of like, if you can go an hour without doing X, you'll get rewarded in this way. It started to feel very pressured to me because we were working so hard to get him to contain himself and go two hours and then all of these different strategies. He has ended up working the most successfully and happily is in a is at a farm where it um, employs 80, about 80 individuals with developmental disabilities. And he can flap and talk to himself all he wants. If you step back and say, we need many more people with disabilities working in the community to show the world that they can work in the community. One of the great challenges to getting jobs is that we didn't have a long history of adults working at McDonald's, at the counter, at um, college counter. Like one of his great goal was to work in the cafeteria. And it was, and we live in Amherst, which has five colleges right nearby. There wasn't anybody when he started that had a developmental disability that worked in any of the cafeterias. And I just thought, how is that? We had an institution eight miles away that closed 10 years before. Where are those people and why aren't they working to be a kind of role model like, oh, you'll be like Tom who um, did the dish room at Amherst College all these years. And the truth is there's a real paucity of that. And so we didn't know who the role models were, but it's also true that for Ethan, the most comfortable place has been to come back around to be with his peer group and others with, like it hasn't been worth it to him to sort through containing himself. Like he's, he'd rather be himself and be in, yes. all, his, in all his autistic <laughs> glory. Yeah. And I want that to be honored as well. And I hope that right now, funding, programming, the pressure for parents is to get your kid working in a, in a community-based job. And um, anything else is seen as not quite as successful. The same would be true for their closing. Massachusetts has closed a lot of sheltered workshops with the idea being that anytime you congregate workers together, you're going to be abusing or um, it's not good for people. And I kind of have a feeling right now, what what we all need is community and that is their community. So to judge that as being a lesser community it might be missing the, it's, it might be throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but we have to kind of see how this works. For certain, Ethan is, Ethan's farm is thriving and hasn't been judged to be a sheltered workshop, though it was threatened with that, um, with closure when Massachusetts closed all its sheltered workshops. I see their point, and I also feel really strongly that these need to be an option as well, a valid option. Yes. I wondered if we could do a little bit of um, myth busting, you know, things that you wish you knew before and uh, things people don't tell us. One thing that you wrote, something along the lines of, I wish I knew it isn't just about closing the gap between my son and his peers. 
Mm. I wonder, because I, I imagine for many years that it felt like the goal was just trying to create fewer and fewer differences. And that, I mm-hmm. imagine, was a 24-hour-a-day job. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Oh, every parent of an autistic kid will recognize that. And then there's some point where that seems so funny because they're so different that why did I bother? Oh, it just seems really comical to me now because what then you begin the process of realizing their difference is what is their gift seems trite to say, but it's... um. It's what disarms others and what the great gift of kids who are very different are is the is how they create bridges around them. I do think they're going to be, as we figure out ways to include them in jobs, I think they can be very advantageous in a workplace because everybody can come together around the kindness of helping people. But I, it's tricky because uh, that shouldn't be an expectation on co-workers, but that when you have people that obviously need help, you uh, disarm others. And uh, I don't know that it can be, be very good in workplaces. And I think even more in residential or in living communities. And that would be my great dream is that we have expand sort of intentional communities that are partly very clearly designed to be partly 25% disabled adults and then 20, you know, 75% low income or, or something that everybody knows what they're moving into, but they're moving into a situation where we will all be a community together. And there's more of that happening. Yes. Yeah. Happily, happily. A, a, a beautiful example in my community, the Friendship House that has. Yes, that's um, a, that a is the, yeah. the beautiful example of that. That's a whole block, right? That's created. The Friendship House is one house, and then there's a whole street. Yes. Does that sound right? I, that's. I think that's right. Yes, my the place I work, the Duke Divinity School, has uh, close ties with them. Yeah. Yes. So it's kids that it's the Div School kids that are coming in. So it's and they're getting lower, and then they're learning a whole lot by and parents had yeah. bought the houses on the street. Uh, See, something like that isn't allowed yet in Massachusetts because they don't want clustered housing. And I think that's what these are such beautiful examples. I'm so glad they exist because they they might need the div school there to get the original. You need to sort of seed it with people who are interested. It also works around medical schools that are training people to specialize in this and they might spend a year living with if you're working in um, OT or PT or something um, you would be li- spending a year living. I, it's a great idea. And I think yeah. that's happening in Atlanta. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Another myth I recognized in your thought and work in life is that you want to undo the sort of endless uh, perfectionism story. You, you write something mm. like, I wish I understood that failure is a part of this process. Tell me how. Well, that was after Ethan failed so many dr- job trials. So you start on the job, uh, the transition that starts at age 16, and we were very ambitious. And I assumed ambition would equal success ultimately, that if we started early, he could learn. And, and if he was training on um, supermarket rounding up carts, he would get that down pat by the time he was 20 and ready to take a job a paying job and that that would all measure up because we would have worked on it for so long. And, and a big part of educating 
kids with autism is repetition and reward and um, and just, you know, making it sort of an ingrained part. And he just didn't like some of those jobs for whatever reason. And he then when it was such a shocker when they're 18, they're allowed to quit their job. And this would have been not even really a job, but it would have been, uh, you know, his training, his internship. But he could announce I quit. And (laughs) you just want to say, oh, no, 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 (laughs) no. I know. I don't think you. And then he really did. And you were like, wait, really did. wait I really no, put no. a lot of work into this. <laughs> it kept happening over and over. I was so, yeah, because some of them I had done big emotional appeals to let him come in and intern and learn the job and saying, this is so important. Historically, we haven't let these kids in. You'd have to realize. And then after the big mother plea came the uh the reality which was i I wanted a soda at the end of my cafeteria shift and i didn't get one and i quit and he was always good natured about it like he would go back later and hug his fellow co-workers and say i miss you so much it was so maddening <laughs> like, why did you quit? <laughs> and, but that is the ultimate thing with our children is they don't, they do mysterious things sometimes. But ultimately, I thought we, it was so clear when he went to the farm, he was just settled. There was no, I want to leave. In fact, he would work harder or say, oh, they need extra people on this day. I should go in or it's, you know, a snowstorm predicted, but they'll need me. Uh, There was something that he felt part of it. And he felt a belonging that it wasn't like a game anymore that I could just quit. I, I, it felt so different and to me quite profound that there was a sense of meaning and importance to his his position there, whether it was, you know, actual or not, whether he's really that important of a part. He feels it and the place feels very positive. And so I felt like that's to be honored, you know, that he there's something he's saying with all his um, in subtle ways and in large ways and in small ways that this is where he belongs. And so that, yes. you know, that decided it. One of the other um, myths, I guess, I thought you were taking apart was, I guess, around around um, acceptance is is that the opposite, that maybe there was this ambition, this benchmark mentality, and then when you moved mm-hmm. away from, from it, it was something like, I wish I knew that discovering my child in all of his gifts and joys and limits is the work of all parents. Oh, it is, isn't it? Because we've got two other kids and there's there's a challenge all the time not to push them in directions or to just say, I'm going to stop my knowing what you ought to be doing and I'm going to hear what you're saying to me about what you want to be doing. <laughs> Boy, is that hard. It's easy to say, but I do think it's the most loving thing. And um, I feel like um, that is what having a child with autism or any disability um, becomes a real fast course in accepting that you're you're going to look different this child isn't going to be a great reflection on you for many years and you're you're not going to look great parenting <laughs> this child and um, yes. that's going to be have yeah. to be okay 
You quote the wonderful Andrew Solomon, who we've uh, had on the podcast before when he he writes, mm. um, people don't want to be cured or changed or eliminated. They want to be whoever it is they've come to be. Yeah. That is beautiful. Uh, His books are just beautiful. such a deep, I think so much too of what you're teaching us, Cami, is about what the, what that costs what that costs us when we can love other people in that way. And Mm. that kind of love strikes me as wildly inefficient, right? Like it's not letting me pick things for you, which I would. I have very great ideas. (laughs) uh, (laughs) They are. They're all good. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I've developed a series of checklists. It often seems to cost more than it receives. It's not glamorous, nor do Mm -hmm. we just want it to be martyry. But it does seem... Like it chooses love in that way because it is the only path. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like the kind of love that you are, that you are modeling in this big, deep, wide acceptance of who your family is. Yeah. I hope. And, but he also gets into, it has to include more people than just yourselves. And so that's sort of our challenge for a society going forward is how we're going to um, have our, our communities be wider than our immediate families. I think groups helping each other is such a key component that this, the, Ethan's group does very well with older people and retirees and who are also at risk for isolation and loneliness. And they're so uncalculating um, in their friendliness and their conversation starters that it's often terrific for people who have difficulty with that. And and I wish that we can find more venues to make those those kinds yes. of bridges. To belong to each other. To belong to each other. Yeah. You're right, because the gross way is the the I think the martyry, heroic, suffering, perfect back to not just good enough parent, but perfect parent, perfect parent yeah. of it forces us back into making families and individualism carry the weight of each other's lives. And I love that you are calling us to a much bigger communal vision of interdependence. Yeah. These young adults can help us create that interdependence because their needs are pretty clear cut. They don't even mind their own needs. And what are yours? Do you use your oxygen tank? Need help? <laughs> you know, can I carry it for you? Yes. That's Ethan around older people and fascinated with all the equipment and stuff like that. I, I feel like that's really, I, I just don't know how that's going to be my next chapter is figuring out how to help or facilitate wider communities like that. Yes. Yes. Cami, you're calling us to a more porous world that and that yes. our needs and our gifts um, ask us like they they make bids and we must answer. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for that beautiful, important reminder, because I plan on being very needy tomorrow. And I hope <laughs> that other people will be there to answer. We all will be, and the whole week to come. Yes, we give thanks <laughs> for our own neediness yes. to come. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. 
We talk a lot about costly love in this community. Love that is very inefficient. Love that costs more than it receives. Not the glamorous kind or the martyry kind, but love. Love because it is the only path. But the kind of love that Cami points to requires more than a single individual's heroic efforts. Our interdependence depends on each other. Parents or families or teachers or social workers can't just be heroic on their own. We need one another. This is the concern of many special needs parents or caregivers, that at some point, their children might need someone else. At some point, I won't be their parent anymore, or I won't have the ability to care for them. What will come? Who will be there? And so, we answer the call. We need to create bigger communities of belonging, communities that make room for all of our fragility to be shouldered together. So here's a blessing for that kind of inefficient love. Blessed are you who realize you can't go it alone. You who are learning that dependence is not something to be ashamed of, that your needs do not make you weak. That is just what it means to be human. Blessed are we who create and live in communities that cost us something. Inefficiency, our dignity, our time. May these bring wider and wider rings of belonging that reach beyond ourselves. Because, thank God, we are a group project. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the Friendship House, where students live in community with people with intellectual or developmental disabilities, visit friendshiphousepartners.com. And in every way you take a minute for others, thank you, really. Here's the part where I get to thank everyone who makes this work at the Everything Happens initiative possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke University, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. Thank you for your generous support. And my team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Jesse Broom, Keith Weston, JJ Dickinson, Karen and Jerry Bowler, Jeb and Sammy. Your gifts make this work shine. I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Everything Happens wherever you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and if you don't mind, please leave a review when you're there. We really love to hear from you. We always read those reviews and really love listening to your stories. You are really special to us. Find me online at Kate C. Bowler or at katebowler.com. And it's not too late for you to jump in and join the Sadness Lent train. We're inviting you to read along with us as we have a good enough Lent. Learn more and download a free discussion guide at katebowler.com slash Lent. That's katebowler.com slash Lent.